The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, we all feel a connection to nature, whether it's the soil that grounds us or the stars that inspire. But what exactly do we feel, and how does that change depending on individual circumstances and situations? How might politics affect our stance, or wealth, or family, or history, or oppression, or injustice? Would a prisoner see the sky the same way as someone who's not incarcerated? Does grass mean the same thing? Luckily, we don't have to guess at the answers to these questions, because a new book, A Darker Wilderness, Black Nature Writing from Soil to Stars, does a lot of this work for us. It's an anthology of writing about the personal effects of nature on a constellation of luminary writers, and about the role of nature in the lives of black folks in the United States. Black folks living today and living in centuries past. The sun and moon and stars and soil are all still there in the rivers and trees and mountains and valleys, but the people in those places are different. What's going on in their minds? And how does it help us understand our own relationship to nature and each other? We'll talk to Aaron Sharkey, the editor of A Darker Wilderness, today on the history of literature. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm looking forward to talking to you today, and I hope you're looking forward to listening. We have Aaron Sharkey, a writer and organizer and cultural worker and film producer here in just a few minutes. But first, let's check in with Emily Dickinson. Speaking of nature writing, we get a very idiosyncratic but also very brilliant version of nature from her, often in small but repeated doses, don't we? Now, I haven't selected a nature poem on purpose, and in fact, as I say this, I'm a little anxious now that she'll give us one of her poems that's about something else altogether. But maybe that's Emily's way of telling us that what we need is a little a little salt to go with our sugar. Have you ever made a Manhattan? You can make it with bourbon or rye. Sweet vermouth, you gotta have that. But bourbon is sweet, so if you choose to use bourbon, you double down on the sweetness. Rye is less so. It doesn't have the corn that bourbon adds to the wheat. Sweet vermouth plus something less sweet if you have your bourbon with it. Why am I talking about this? Well, we're, we're going to have a whole conversation about nature. Will Emily Dickinson double down on nature? Is this what you need, people? Or will she pull back and give us something else? And what will that be? History, maybe, or the Bible? I don't think we can expect her to write a poem about a city, but sometimes she writes about things other than birds and bees and sunrises and sunsets. We will see. So we open the book to our next poem. We are up to 2.32, and as I suspected, it is not about nature. We had such a good poem about the tempest that mashed the air last time. So if you want your fix, 
If you insist on pairing nature with nature, if you're one of those people who likes bourbon in your Manhattan, plus maybe a, a candied cherry or two, sweet plus sweet plus sweets, then go back and listen to that one. Our last episode, The Tempest That Mashed the Air with the Storm That Unleashed the Goblins, gnashing their teeth and swinging their frenzied hair, chuckling on the roofs and whistling in the air. Unforgettable. Okay, today we have 232. It's not about nature, it's about, (laughs) good guess on my part, the Bible. Two stanzas, four lines each. Short lines, of course. Do I even need to say that? I'll tell you when the lines are long. How about that? This whole poem is 45 words. 232. He forgot, and I remembered. Let me pause there. Emily's dashes. There are three dashes in this line. One at the end. Let's not count that one. There's two in the middle. Read it without the dashes and you get he forgot and I remembered. Technically, you could even have a comma there if you wanted because you have subject verbs on both sides of the and. But because both sides are short, the comma is optional. He forgot and I remembered with no punctuation is perfectly acceptable. But Emily Dickinson writes, he forgot, dash, and I, dash, remembered. The emphasis there shifts. He forgot, and I remembered. Mm, Immediately, I'm drawn into this little puzzle, her framing of it, her sensibility. Okay, storyteller, you have something on your mind. Who's he? Who are you? Why hesitate there? Why the emphasis on the I? Why is it such a big deal that you, storyteller, poet, remembered Let's hear the rest of the first stanza. He forgot, and I remembered. T'was an everyday affair. Long ago, as Christ and Peter warmed them at the temple fire. Hmm. Both warmed them and temple fire are in quotes. Okay, Christ and Peter, we know. They're warming themselves at the temple fire. And this is like something else. There's something that was an everyday affair that somebody has forgotten, but not the poet. Let's hear the second half of the poem to see why we should care. Make sense of this. Okay. Thou wert with him, quoth the damsel. No, said Peter, t'wasn't me. Jesus merely looked at Peter. Could I do aught else to thee? Okay, Peter, as we know, denied knowing Jesus. That's the t'wasn't me. Thou wert with him, quoth the damsel. So Peter Peter denied knowing Jesus three times. Peter, this, this guy, this is the rock on which the church shall be built. Jesus' best friend, maybe. He's up there anyway. And yet, when the... When the stuff is hitting the fan, Peter's all, nope, not me. I'm not with that guy. Very human, our Peter. Understandable weakness, self-preservation instincts kicked in. Those Romans meant business. Those crosses were no joke. Satan wants you, Jesus said, but I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith will fail you not. 
And Peter says, Lord, I am ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. And Jesus responds, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Ah, then what happens? Judas sells him out. Judas might be Jesus' best friend, right? That's what we'd do in the screenplay version. We'd make the two of them pals. Because then, oh, the irony, Judas sells out Jesus with a kiss. And Peter follows from afar. A group of people kindle a fire in the hall, and a certain maid beholds him and says, This guy, this... (laughs) She points at Peter, this man was also with him. And he says, woman, I know him not. Ixnay on the eases, Jay, woman. He then denies him twice more. And then he remembers the prophecy. I mean, he could, he, could have, he could have denied Jesus twice and then held off just for that third one. After two, you'd think he'd, he'd have been kind of careful. Like, oh, geez. He said I was going to deny him three times. I've already done it twice. Maybe I'll just keep my mouth shut. But no, things transpired exactly as Jesus had predicted. Three times he denied knowing Jesus. And after the third time, the cock crows and Jesus turns and looks at Peter. And then we are told Peter remembered the prophecy and wept bitterly. It's a beautiful human story. I was always, when I was a kid, I was always on the side of Jesus. Look at this weak friend. Look at this guy insisting that he will not do it, and then he does it. Now I'm a little more on Peter's side. Even the heroes have flaws. It's okay to be weak and then full of regrets. We're not all Jesus. None of us is. We're Peter if we're lucky. But in this case, Emily Dickinson is in the position of Jesus. She's looking to Jesus to see what she should do, how she should handle the situation she has. Let's step away from the Bible and toward the scenario that Emily is presenting in about 10 words. That's all she needs. He forgot and I remembered. T'was an everyday affair. What is this? Well, If we take the poet to be a woman, as I think we can, then we have a he and a she. Something between man and woman. Was an everyday affair. But what was it? A a flirtation? A laugh? An exchanged glance? A smile as one passes on the street? An amusing joke? Doesn't seem like a big love affair, but something that happens every day. And the guy has forgotten, and the poet has remembered. And the poet thinks, well, let's see. Where do I look for instances? How do I deal with this? Where do I look for instances where someone has denied something? Because the poet clearly thinks the forgetting is a little unusual. It's not sincere. Maybe it was a little more than a flirtation. Oh, Oh, did I tell you that I loved you? Did I write you a love letter? Did I stand below your window singing Italian arias? No, that wasn't me. Or maybe it was just something that the poet thinks the man should have remembered because it was so momentous. A moment where the the glacier cracks 
the thaw begins. You catch a little moment of understanding between two people, a little eye contact, and suddenly you think, oh boy, this could be something. This comment you made that I understood or this laugh that we just shared, there is a little something there. And Emily says, okay, buddy. You don't remember that? I do. You say you don't. Okay, deny me if you want. Say that it wasn't you flirting those flirts. But now what should I do about this? What should I do to you? She switches from third person to second person, or to, I guess, first person accusing. What should I do? He forgot and I remembered, but now second stanza, what should I do to you? Well, Jesus just looked at Peter. That's all he had to do, just looked at him. That's perfect. Nothing else necessary. I'm not going to. I'm just going to look at you and you'll remember. You'll know that I know what you're doing, denying this, and that will be enough. I'm not going to debase myself by insisting or arguing or, or producing evidence. This isn't a court of law that I can win. This is, the, this is the court of love. Jesus didn't say, Peter, oh, Peter, there's the crock crowing. You just denied me three times. See, see, let's go through them. Let's go through the three times you denied me. I was right. No, no, there is dignity in being right, but not if you spoil it by getting all cocky about it. No pun intended. Jesus just looked at Peter and sometimes says Emily, who was dealing with her own guy, denying something, some everyday affair, sometimes a look is enough. That's poem 232. Emily chose rye to pair with our sweet vermouth, a little human nature to balance out our nature cocktail. But as we'll see, this anthology is about nature, but it's also about human nature. It's about both. Aaron Sharkey will explain it after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. 
Okay, joining me now is Aaron Sharkey, who is a writer, arts and abolition organizer, cultural worker, and film producer. She's also the editor of the new book, A Darker Wilderness, Black Nature Writing from Soil to Stars. Aaron Sharkey, welcome to the History of Literature. Thanks for having me, Dick. I'm excited to get to talk with you about it. Good. So, well, let's start with your childhood, actually. You grew up in Minnesota in the Twin Cities area. What kind of relationship did you have with nature? Yeah, I did grow up in the Mac Groveland neighborhood in St. Paul, and we had a really great yard when I was a kid. Uh, we had a really great, there was a big lilac bush between um, our house and our neighbors, and I built forts in the, the lilac bush, and we spent many days sledding down our little hill. We experienced all the seasons here in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also got to explore uh, nature some with my family. We did very extensive summer vacations, road trips, where we would, sometime in the winter, my dad would pull out a map and we would pick locations and he would string them together and we would drive sometimes for five weeks, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, four or five weeks long, um, sleeping in a tent. And so I got to see lots and lots of national parks and state parks. I got to see a lot of the country. And so, yeah, I have a a good opportunity to see what great diversity there is in sort of the nature and biomes across our country and get to see lots of different kinds of communities, eat lots of different kinds of food. Mm, Right. (laughs) See art in museums in different cities. Yeah. So these were the trips in the maroon minivan that you talk about. Yes. Yep. (laughs) Right. I think a lot of people probably have something similar or at least they right. have seen enough. It's it's kind of a trope, you know, they, if they haven't done it themselves, they're aware that other Americans are out there doing this, uh, spending their summers this way. That's yeah, true. Yeah. Some people might think that nature is the place where human differences fall to the wayside. But as you write, uh, you have a quote in the introduction, I learned that nature is not a place where you can escape the oppressive rules of race. So what types of experiences led you to that understanding? Yeah, so I am a mixed person. Uh, My mother is white and my father is black. Um, I didn't have a relationship with my father when I was really little, and I had a stepdad. My dad, my stepdad is also white, and it mm. makes it confusing to tell stories about my childhood because I call both men um, father or dad. So we had a, a unique makeup as a family. Um, my white parents and my brother, Tommy, who was a very beautiful young person, a, a toe-headed, blue-eyed little boy. And then when I was in middle school, my parents adopted my brother, Lucas, who was born in Guatemala. Um, and so our family looked different than other families when mm. we did these road trips in our maroon minivan. Um, I remember reflecting as a young person, probably at nine or 10, that the many, most of the other kids that were playing at this campground across the country were white kids. And they often could see enough about my family to be curious about our makeup. And so I often had to sort of like explain to my peers on a rusty <laughs> playset at a national park why my parents were white and I was not white. And it made me ask questions and made me think about why that was, uh, why we got to, why we did do that kind of adventuring. And I didn't see a lot of kids that looked like me or like my family makeup when I was out in it. And I think that 
it's, you know, one of the seeds that helped me really reflect on the ways that the structural racism that we encounter in our country, which, you know, you could think of examples like sundowner rules in small towns or suburbs or things like redlining that dictated where folks Mm -hmm. could buy property, that those sort of things, we can legislate them away, but the impact of those things, those rules, those policies, those racist agendas are and still present themselves in our lives. And so the ways that we feel comfortable, what places that we feel comfortable, the places that we feel confident to do the sort of skills that, you know, you might want to have when you're camping, those sort of things are not evenly distributed amongst folks. And so I think it's important that when we're thinking about what equity issues there are to tackle, it's important, I think, to think about the remnants of those sort of policies, which they don't just go away the day that we sign those things out of law. Right. It reminded me of, you know, the stories of of wealthy people in Los Angeles who have access to beaches that they don't want the public to be using, or they have a view that mm-hmm. they want to have pristine and they don't want to have anybody who's, you know, wandering into it. And it kind of does make you think, well, on the one hand, obviously they don't own the sunset and they don't own the sky. Uh, but on the other hand, they are in a way kind of claiming it for themselves that isn't available to everyone. And, and you know, we all can go outside and look up, but there's a difference between that and kind of feeling a sort of comfort or a, taking a kind of pride or a pleasure in nature based on who you are and where you are and how you're able to access it that might be different depending on the different circumstances you come from. Yeah, for sure. And in in Minnesota, we have very clear example in this up north culture that we all Mm, embrace here mm -hmm. in Minnesota, where many, many people have cabins on little lakes that scatter across the landscape up in northern Minnesota. And it's part of the culture. People talk about it in shorthand, but it isn't an experience that's distributed amongst people equally. The home ownership rates for Black folks in the Twin Cities is embarrassing. It's that it is a way, you know, that the, the, those redlining, those rules around racially um, restrictive covenants in our housing deeds, those sort of things are also trickle into who has access to natural spaces, who has access to kind of rest and recreation. Um, was your family's culture built around getting to see your parents rest in a particular way? Minneapolis is is very it's famous for having really exceptional parks, and it's really true. There is a park within blocks of every person that lives in this town. And so there are lots of ways to recreate um, around our, in our neighborhoods. Um, and I spent a lot of time in parks. We have a park within block one way and two blocks the other way from my home right now. But it doesn't mean that everyone feels the same kind of access to those spaces, the same kind of safety in those spaces, the same kind of treatment from authority figures or from police in those kind of spaces. So I think that yeah, it's important to think about the Minneapolis also has a super scary rate of drowning for kids of color because we have lakes everywhere and lakes in many of those parks. And that has to do with who gets access to swimming lessons and whose parents know how to swim. Those sort of things are, I think, life and death issues to, to think about in our time. Yeah. And it's it, what's so interesting about the the examples you're giving in Minnesota is that the Black people who are living there, it's 
it's not as if they just can draw a line around the experiences that other people are having. It's almost like you mm-hmm. you end up borrowing that or or feeling the pull of that. I, my own experience growing up as a white kid in Wisconsin, where everyone would go up north and go deer hunting, and they're you know they would have these experiences where they would be out in the woods and in the cold and you know bonding and and the hunt and all of that. And I didn't happen to do that because my family weren't hunters, but there would be, you know, weeks in school where there would be like six kids left in the classroom because all the other kids went out and they were with their families deer hunting. And and we had a, in gym class, we had a, a deer hunting unit where, you know, wow. <laughs> which was just, it was kind of bizarre to me. And so on the one hand, none of that really was part of my childhood and background. But on the other hand, if I had to write about nature, let's say, I might have tried to put a character in the woods, you know, tracking a deer or or sitting right. in a tree stand or all these things that I was just hearing about, but not part of. But I, I recognize that there's a difference between my experience and when you're you're prevented from it by societal forces or when you're Mine was just by happenstance. My dad wasn't a hunter, but for a lot of people, it would feel even more of a, well, this isn't for me. But on the other hand, it's kind of all I know, having grown up here, you sort of take that in by osmosis. Right. Yep. That's so true. Were you aware of this when you were a child, uh, just sort of nature writing? And did you find yourself drawn to books like that? Or did that come later in life that you started to recognize the influence that nature and writing about nature would have on you as a person? Yeah, I always liked to, I was a kind of ravenous reader as a young person. Um, I think I really probably fell in love with books around like 10 or 11 years old. My aunt who lived out west I think she did some sort of early online used book sales but she always had boxes and boxes of of books and she sent me a box uh, when I was I don't know I think 10 or 11 Hmm. of some books and in it were um, several novels that probably were a little bit past my reading level but I just could not stop reading at that point I I built a fort and just I read day and night (laughs) Um, and I think that you know, I can maybe thinking back at it, see the ways that I could see nature as a character in many of the books that I was reading. But I continued to gravitate towards literature. So I was a literature major in college. And at that point was got access to reading some of the classics of, of nature writing, the Walden Palms, the Silent Springs, that sort of books that helped me think about the ways in which, in a lot of ways, the ways in which the Industrial Revolution impacted our relationship with nature and created that sort of binary between a city and a rural space or between things that are made out of metal and things that are made out of wood that sort of came upon us intellectualism and that came onto the scene at that point. Anyway, I think that it wasn't until I was a graduate student that I started really thinking about the ways in which nature and race played together. Uh, I read a collection called The Color of Nature, it was edited by Lorette Savoy and Allison Hawthorne Deming, that was a collection of essays from writers of color about their relationship to nature. And that led me to read some books by Camille Dungy, some books by uh, Carolyn Finney, that really put race as a, as a main character in its 
conversation about who has access to which spaces. What does it mean to have your whole life spent stewarding a piece of nature, piece of wild wilderness, a piece of forest that your family doesn't own and how easily that can be taken away from you Mm. or the ways in which your presence in nature poses a threat and what welcomes a myriad of microaggressions, that sort of thing. So I feel really fortunate to have lots of great thinkers and writers to follow as I was crafting A Darker Wilderness. Um, I went back and I reread lots of, of classic nature writing too to get a sense of sort of what is at the heart of it, what is the ethos of that kind of writing, and and to try to sense into what is the difference that Black writers bring to the conversation. And I think what I found is that there is an additional aspect, I feel like, to nature writing by Black folks that has to do with liberation and freedom and contemplation of living in that sort of tension in a country where we're at moments ostensibly free, but budding against racism. Right. Well, that is a nice transition because I wanted to ask you about your experience teaching nature writing in a prison setting. So let's take a quick break and then we'll talk about that. And we'll also hear more about your new anthology that you've edited, A Darker Wilderness. Okay, we are back. So Aaron, as you note in the introduction, nature writing is often about freedom and access to vast and open spaces. It's kind of set up in opposition to urban life or or being indoors. And, and yet you had a revelation that came while teaching nature writing in a prison setting. So what was that like? What was it like teaching nature writing to prisoners? Uh, well, the teaching that I do in prison is a great gift to me, and it's just it helps me to be a better writer, helps me to think about writing in new ways. And I've been teaching with the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop for several years now, um, and I've taught all different classes with them, sort of intro classes, getting your feet wet classes, to uh, writing your memoir or writing a lyric essay. Mm. And I was asked to design a new class whatever I wanted to, for a group of men that are um, incarcerated at Faribault Correctional, which is a facility, the biggest one in the state of Minnesota. And I thought about it. And just because of some things that I was thinking about at the time, I proposed a science and nature writing class for that facility. And I knew that there's a possibility that they would put me in a classroom that's off of a small courtyard on the campus of the prison. And I was wondering if it would help me to stretch the way that I thought about nature, and it certainly did. In the very first days of that course, students were helping me learn about nature in new ways. They really were. um, I thought that we would do a lot of reflecting about our childhoods, a lot of thinking about time prior to incarceration, experiences in nature, and they certainly did. And they wrote really gorgeous essays about uh, sandstorms when they were fighting in Iraq or about um, learning to hunt as boys or cliff jumping, <laughs> yeah, those sort of things. But then they also were able to find nature in really micro ways right around them. So they have a very important relationship with a, a, a family of ducks that visit a, a small puddle, <laughs> um, a little tiny pond that's um, inside the walls. 
and they sometimes bring little bites of food for them. They have named them. They have great stories about the ducks that live there. Or um, one of the uh, men in the class wrote about the ways that the way he has to crane his neck and head to look out the window to see the tiny sliver of sky. And what does it mean to see the different kinds of sky from that vantage point? Yeah. Or the ways in which they could see the trees changing in seasons and how that helped them understand the passage of time as they were working and doing their time, right? Thinking about how do you spend years, um, how do you market when your daily life is pretty monotone, pretty regimented. And I felt uh, just really inspired to see nature everywhere and to see the ways that which my body is nature, the ways that I interact with the world on tiny levels, the ways that where when sweat comes to me or the ways that I navigate my hair or those are all nature questions too. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, really inspired and it really helped me in the editing process and the ways that I was talking to contributors about, about the essays for A Darker Wilderness. Was it that it was giving them a connection to a world outside the prison that was so important to them? Or was it a, a glimpse of beauty that they might not have had? Or what, what do you think was behind mm-hmm. the uh, almost uh, intense embrace of the glimpses of nature that they were afforded? Mm-hmm. It's a great question. I mean, I think that often this kind of extended incarceration does at a certain point, I, I've, I've witnessed that it allows a kind of reflection, kind of pensiveness, a deepness. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly for the writers that find themselves into community inside, I think that they have a real grace about them in terms of how that they are approaching their relationship to the world and, and to each other. And so I think that in any way, when you're focused on something for 15 weeks and invited to to journal or to make observations or to commit to writing a long piece where nature is its focus. I think part of it was just the environment and the opportunity to talk and reflect together, to share with each other, to say, oh my gosh, like we don't know have that much in common with each other, but I had a very similar experience to that to you that you're describing in your work. So but I think that's partly the liberatory possibility of the arts. Mm. Yeah. I think it is a human rights question, right? I think that there's lots of ways to to think about the inhumane conditions that folks live in who are incarcerated. In Minnesota, we just had a an inmate strike uh, that there were some men who were incarcerated at Stillwater Correctional who was nearly 100 degrees here in Minnesota. And they are, because of staff shortages, in cells 23 hours a day. And so they were out of their cells to get their phone calls in and to get water and to play cards with each other, that sort of stuff. And it was just so impressively hot that they refused to go back to their cells. And it opened up a conversation about how do we take care of the people that are incarcerated and what do they deserve? And some of those things are very, very basic need things. They need clean, fresh water. Mm-hmm. They need ice on a day that's 100 degrees. They need to be where the air is moving, you know, those sort of basic human rights stuff. Yeah. Is part of that package of things that are being discussed uh, having an access to nature so that they're not kept indoors solely and that they can feel the sunshine or see the 
the sky and, and that kind of thing? I mean, I think that that would be great. And I think that they would deserve, they deserve it. I don't know that um, the class really inspired that kind of activism on site, but I know that the men that were in that class, many of them are involved in conversations with leadership around, around those sort of access issues. Mm-hmm. things around how you know how things are scheduled but we're facing really complicated challenges with the, the lack of staffing here in minnesota the cramped conditions the one of our oldest prisons here still has a cell size that is way too small right competing uh budgetary issues and everything yeah and then you know in lots of ways the folks that survived the pandemic inside prisons prison is the worst place to get a disease like that because you can't be isolated you can't get comfort and care in the same ways that we you know we all did when we got COVID (laughs) um and there was you know widespread death across across the system lots and lots of people died and so one of the contributors to the collection is a writer who's incarcerated his name is Ronald Greer and before the pandemic I was invited into a facility where I wasn't teaching to to be part of a reading, um, to, to listen to a reading. And the men in that reading shared just gorgeous pieces, including um, Ronald Greer, who sh- had a short sort of a lyric piece about growing up in Detroit and, and exploring the, his grandfather's garden, which is against in an alley um, in an inner city neighborhood. Mm. The voice in it was so gorgeous. And so I asked him if he could turn that short piece, that one pager into a 15 page essay or 20 page essay for the book. Um, and he agreed to do that. But then the, we went into lockdown. And because of my role as a teacher, I can really only communicate with students in class or through the Department of Education there. Um, and so we had to do a really complicated game of telephone in order to do this process together. So he would write and draft and send that through the education department to someone else at the organization that I teach with, who then would send it to me. I would send edits back to that person at MPWW, who would send it in through the education department and through um, the Kite system, which is their, their communication system inside. And so it was a very complicated process. And sometimes there were moments of miscommunication or it just sometimes it would take weeks and weeks and weeks and we weren't sure if the messages were dropped in between. So it is a pretty huge miracle that he, he was able to create such a gorgeous essay for the collection. Uh, I feel very honored that it's there and proud of him for the effort that it took to, to write it without access to the library or to the computer lab or to, uh, yeah, opportunities to be outside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm just, uh, I'm so struck by this as your experience as almost like a, a metaphor or a way of, of putting different issues on the table about how we experience nature, because we sort of, the, the first thing that comes to mind is kind of the, the grand trip to the, the national park or the visit to the Grand Canyon or, or, you know, seeing a, a giant waterfall or, or things like that. But it, it does kind of remind us that, there are, you know, instances of nature like a, a spider running across your desk or or things like that that can be just as prominent and, and just as important, but also that your particular circumstances that you're in 
will impact the way that that nature affects you at that time. And so if there's a beautiful meadow, let's say, and and you just, all you want to do is take off your shoes and go run through it barefoot. But on the other hand, separating you from it is a prison wall or or maybe just Mm -hmm. a, a fence with a keep out sign. It's going to feel very different than if you're within reach of that meadow and have access to it and so on. So, and I, I just can't get over the ducks. Mm-hmm. If if we're hoping for uh, rehabilitation of the incarcerated people, and if we're f- hoping to view the way we treat them as a measure of our own humanity, it seems like there's hardly anything better than a group of people who are feeling this impulse to take care of these ducks and to to see them want to see the family of ducks do well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. Yep. And I think that, you know, one thing that I, one feeling that I wanted to convey to the contributors to this collection as I commissioned essays was that I don't think it is necessary for good nature writing to be positive. Mm-hmm. And sometimes our relationships aren't all positive, right? Yeah. I grew up, in addition to getting to adventure across the country in our maroon van, I also grew up with really bad childhood asthma and allergies. Mm -hmm. And it created like a whole complicated um, list of relationships with nature. I'm allergic to everything, grass and trees and dust and molds and animals. And and anytime the weather was about to change, my my lungs would feel it. I would know a day before a storm (laughs) that it was coming. Yeah, And so for me, a contemplation about nature doesn't necessarily have to only be about that liberatory quality or the like ways that which we see a gorgeous meadow or we, we climb a mountain and feel the sort of the accomplishment of pushing our body to its limits, which is, I think a, a lot of nature writing, but it's, it also could be around the ways in which it helps us feel the sensory information that's around us or the ways in which it helps us contemplate our fragility or our interdependence with each other or the ways in which we're impacted by the world. And so Mm. I think you're right that the way into this conversation that I had through this class and through this group of men who were able to really see a a lot of diversity of opportunities to be engaged with nature, it really helped me to push myself to think about the ways in which, why do I require nature writing to be that underscores what I think is a larger trope maybe about nature that I think is back rooted in the sort of imperial industrialization, mm. colonization sort of question that is at the heart of America. Like I think that we can also look at it through a different lens and see lessons there as well. So when you got these essays and they were coming in and you were seeing the examples of historical and cultural experiences of Black Americans and how those have influenced their connection to nature, were you seeing any any broader themes or trends or are the experiences all different depending on the individuals? Um, I think there's a great diversity of experience across the collection. I was invited to learn about some historical figures that I didn't know about. And I think that that has been a really great joy in the editing process for me. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I think that there are quiet essays or louder ones. There are ones that are really rooted in research um, and other ones are really about very intimate personal experiences. There are ones that feel very like 
national historic worthy and other ones that feel very quiet and very intimate and domestic. And um, one of my favorite essays in the collection is by Michael Cleaver Diggs, in which he, he describes a year that he lived, he and his twin brother lived with their grandparents after the death of their father. And it really just quietly walks us through a domesticity that's like, it's about their garden and about the tactile things in their space that were tied to nature and tied to a different kind of cadence and speed. And and that nature belongs in a collection with um, an essay about the Revolutionary War, I think. <laughs> mm. And so it was fun to see the sort of connections between people's experience, but also the diversity across the collection. Did you feel like the earlier examples from the when you looked at historical figures that that they had a, a stronger connection to nature just because civilization, the way it's moved on and we can kind of live at our computer screens and so on, but we're not out necessarily uh, walking down to get water or working the soil in the way that someone might have been? Did you feel that you were time traveling as you were looking at these experiences? Mm, mm. Sure. Yeah, I think that there was an aspect of feeling into a different kind of time, a different kind of pace. But each of the essays also really feel like the writers that brought the material together. Mm -hmm. um, and so they all do have a contemporary feel, but they all journey different places into different locales and different times in history. And, and I intentionally commissioned work from writers of all different sorts. I am kind of partial to the ways that poets approach the essay. I really like the lyric quality of them, the sort yeah. of sensory information, the ways that they lean into associative connection. And so you'll feel that in the collection. But yeah, I think that in terms of the historical figures and the questions that they were asking, I think that we all kind of are asking the same questions. You know, I think that, yeah, you know, when you think about Austin Dabney, who fought in the Revolutionary War, um, there's a question around whether he deserved the same sort of award at the end of that fighting and that sort of essential work to bring America to be America as his fellow soldiers. And what does it mean that he was granted some land, but not his freedom? And how do we ask these questions in our current environment, in our current space? Like, what are the questions about free movement, about who has access to own land? What does it mean to own something? Are questions that we are asking in our time as it's harder and harder to buy a house. It's think that lots of folks got reintroduced to nature in the pandemic um, because they're behind their computers, but also we experience time differently. And lots of folks chose to leave a city to go somewhere more rural, to return to their hometowns where family was. Those sort of things happen too. So Right. And instead of your life being, you know, the office and the, the gym or the health club and the and the grocery store and the, you know, wherever else you go to socialize, the bar or whatever, it becomes, well, if I want to get out of the house, I've got to go somewhere where people aren't around. And that might be, here's a park nearby or here's a, here's a trail that I haven't been on for a while. <laughs> yeah. And people getting reacquainted with their, their dogs. Yeah you know, their, their pets at home or thinking about you trying to find a place in your house that's maybe already packed with, with your stuff, but maybe your kids are working from home too. It's like, how do you find a place where 
you can feel the sun on your face a little bit. Yeah. Which is all a nature question. <laughs> right. So I wanted to ask you about Benjamin Banneker and uh, who was he and why is he featured in the book? Yeah. Well, I'm a big fan of Benjamin Banneker and so feel so fortunate that I've got to spend so much time with him in the, in the archives in creating this collection. So in my essay in the collection, I wrote about Benjamin Banneker, but in part, I, I was invited several years ago to be in residence at an archive called the Gibbons Collection of African American Literature at the Anderson Library at the University of Minnesota. And I was given a residency without any direction. They said, follow your inspiration, get, get curious, which is a very attractive offer to me. I love mm. the idea that the research would lead me to the subject, lead me to the questions and lead me to the answers. And so in that collection, I was able to read unpublished first person accounts of enslavement um, that were taken during the, um, the Federal Writers Project, where they sent people out to interview folks in projects that it resulted in the ex-slave narrative. Mm. Um, and I got to read the narratives of some folks who were enslaved in Mississippi, not far from where my family, from the Black side of my family, uh, has homestead. And I was fascinated by those narratives and, and really struck by the way in which they described the experience of the field and of working, mm. say, a cotton field from the experience of the garden which was often under the purview of those enslaved. So they grew food for themselves. And, and so I was interested in whether there was this glimmer of autonomy or glimmer of freedom inside of this really oppressive, horrible situation. And that led me down lots and lots of amazing rabbit holes of other kinds. So I looked at garden club roles. I looked at recipe books. I looked at different kinds of tinctures that people made. There, one of the narratives talks about how their aunt was a really good terrapin hunter. And so I, I spent some time thinking about terrapin hunting and what was it like to hunt for turtle uh, and make dishes from turtle. So that gives you a sense of like the beginning of that journey to Benjamin Banneker. And it led me to some older farmer's almanacs, which I love a farmer's almanac. I think that they are yeah. just so fascinating to me and so many interesting stories about how they got it right or uh, what was the impact of having prediction around weather events, that sort of thing. And that led me to uh, Benjamin Banneker's almanac that he wrote in the 1790s, which became the inspiration for this essay in the collection, which great farmer's almanacs have something called a best days calendar, which is like astrology, like horoscopes for farmers. So mm -hmm. it basically gives you a chart and tells you what day, the, this day on the calendar is the best day to do certain activities. So things like shearing your sheep or planting a, a tree that bears fruit or repaying a debt to a neighbor or purchasing animals. Those are all on a schedule that has to do with our positionality to the sun and to mm. the moon and to other planets, that sort of thing. And so it got me thinking about what are the rhythms of an urban place. I, I spent 10 years living and working on an urban farm in Western New York and Buffalo. And I really wanted to talk about that time and to think about if there were any connections to the sort of things I was thinking about in the archive around the ro role of the garden in our lives and role of the garden on the 
for those who experience enslavement. And so I started by writing a series of best days. So thinking about what is the best day to do what things in the city and how is that tied to the nature in us and the ways that we might be in relationship to the seasons or to weather events or to the moon and its fullness or newness. And yeah, so I went back then to Benjamin Banneker and thought about the ways that his almanac was a political document as much as it was a traditional almanac. And it reflected the ways that he brought long observation. Um, he was, I think, the, the person who identified the 17-year cicadas by watching and observing and um, the work that he did on his farm. So it, Benjamin Banneker also had a lot of really awesome connections to to Buffalo, New York, which is the city that I was writing and thinking about, because Benjamin Banneker was part of the team that did some city design and city planning, um, famously for the city of Washington, D.C., right. but he worked with the Ellicotts, who designed Buffalo, and it's not clear. There's lots of mystery around Benjamin Banneker because many of his papers were lost in the fire, and there's lots of competing theories about his life and his impact, and one of the, my favorite speculations about Benjamin Banneker is that he was descended from a person who survived the Middle Passage and who learned plain eye astronomy in West Africa and brought the skills of reading the stars with them and taught them to Benjamin Banneker. And so mm. there is some possibility that Benjamin Banneker was descended from folks who understood the skies in the ways that yeah, he brought that knowledge to benefit his new environs and with his new neighbors. Yeah, right. Just sort of wrapping up here, what can we learn when we read about other people's experiences with nature? And I'll sort of frame it this way, which is mm -hmm. I find it almost impossible to, I, I'll be interested and I'll, I'll take it all in and I feel like I'm learning about somewhere else and someone else, but I also find mm -hmm. myself constantly comparing myself and my own situation, mm -hmm. my own history with what I'm reading. I, I, I don't know if that's because we we all have access to some of the same elements of nature. And so it's it's so easy to project yourself into a narrative that way. But but do you feel like you're asking people to or you're you're giving people the opportunity to think more about themselves and their own relationship with nature? That has been one of the re responses that I have gotten from readers, folks who have been um, inspired to, to think and reflect in their own ways about uh, their relationship to nature and the ways in which, yeah, the, the boundaries that they put around nature for themselves. Like, is nature just an away place, a place that you go to? Or could it be something that we could see and reflect on closer to home? But for me, my wife is a... Um, a very exuberant human and she she emotes a lot and she is just profoundly impacted by nature in ways that I feel maybe I'm more reserved or something. My wife did not grow up traveling. She didn't grow up doing a lot of exploring uh, of nature, but she loves it. And so, for example, uh, during the pandemic, we did take a trip out to, once we were able to do some movement, we took a trip out to the Black Hills and to see mm. the Badlands and to mm -hmm. look at the, you know, places not too far from our home that look like the surface of Mars, like just look amazing. And I've seen 
them many, many times. And I think they're beautiful and worth the drive from Minnesota to go see them. But just to be in presence of Zoe, just the way that she was just profoundly moved and wanted to take it in it was an invitation to my, to me to, to see them anew and to let the experience wash over me and to, yeah, and to slow down. So I hope that the essays in the collection do help people to slow down a bit, to be able to, to look out and see, to see something in a new way, to let it impact them, to not just keep, you know, rushing past it. The book is called A Darker Wilderness, Black Nature Writing from Soil to Stars. Erin Sharkey, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me. It was a really great conversation. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I'm so glad you could join me today. We are going to travel to Sleepy Hollow next week in honor of October. And then we turn to Homer. We're going to have a dream guest soon, chosen by you, the listeners, and a new biography of Sylvia Plath, or a new way of looking at her anyway. Not quite a biography, but something close. We'll explain all that. HD is coming up, speaking of women poets. Oh, and my thanks to Emily Dickinson today, and of course to Erin Sharkey for being here. I enjoyed that conversation. You can find her book, A Darker Wilderness, Black Nature Writing from Soil to Stars, in bookstores everywhere. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.